Father, we need the presence of your Spirit to open the eyes of our heart to perceive truth and reality. And we ask you to do that this morning as we look together in your word. And God, help us to behold your son, Jesus, as we do in his name. Amen. I want to start before we get into the message this morning about reminding you why we're doing this on the road series, a series of 12 messages in which we look back into Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to gain new frames of reference, as it were, by which we see Jesus himself. And let me do so by way of analogy. Many, many years ago, I was a young man. I was minding my own business, going along in life, and I remember it was a sophomore year in an English class, sitting there in my seat, and this skinny little girl passed by. And I noticed, uh, I hope this sounds okay, that the skinny little girl had suddenly sprouted hips. And uh, that she wasn't as skinny as she used to be, and she looked less like a little girl and more like a young lady. And that sort of got my attention, you know. And, and then, of course, as the years went by, she continued to gain my attention. She continued to blossom in this very lovely young lady. And I got to know her a little bit more over time. We had lots of classes together. And yes, I'm referring to my wife, or I wouldn't be going on like this on Sunday morning. <laughs> <clears throat> I still have a home to go to after this service. So, uh, yeah. So, over the years, we dated sort of off and on and back and forth. And, you know, the more I got to know her, the more I wanted to get to know her. And I knew she was pretty and she's talented and creative, all those things. But, but the more I learn, the more of that I see. And, and then we get married and, you know, that, that just continues, that... Loved her before, love her more now. You know, knew her before, but know her more fully now. And that sort of makes all the difference, doesn't it? And so, you don't have to tell me that I should spend time with my wife. Because I want to. And it'd be hard for me not to. And you know, you got this very high call to husbands in Ephesians 5 that says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And that means sacrificially and to death. That that I'm to see my wife as this person, that I'm to lay down my desires, my life, my will for her benefit. Now, if I didn't know my wife very well, or if I didn't value her very highly, that call to sacrificially serve her would feel like a burden on my back. But if I know my wife, well, as I do, and if I know her worth and her value, then Christ's command to love her sacrificially, it's not an onerous burden on my back. It's a privilege. It's a joy. And so that, that call to death becomes something I'm glad to do. Not, not 100%, and, and not all the time equally well, for sure, but it's not a burden. It's a joy. Because I know and I love my wife. And guys, the whole thing about this series, going back into Genesis to see Christ, is this. I fear and I feel, and I talk to lots of Christians, and I feel like I have a pretty good pulse on this. Uh, I fear that we, and when I say we, I mean you and me, and I mean the church, Lion and Lamb, and I mean the church in the West, in the United States. I fear that we resemble in a way that's uncomfortable to me, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. And that we have lots to boast in about stuff 
and number sometimes the things we can quantify, but I'm not sure that we actually see and value Christ the way we should. I'm not sure that Jesus isn't saying to us today, you have lots of stuff, but you don't have the real wealth that counts. And my sole hope in this series is that we gain a new ability, a new appreciation for Christ because we see Him more fully. So you know, if we hear commands to evangelize, and most of us as Christians, we don't work at this prayerfully. We don't share the hope of the gospel we have with others. So it's a burden, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. How do I go about that? Or if I hear the command to give generously, or if we show up on a Sunday morning and we're talking about giving Jesus His due in praise and worship, but I feel like all I'm bringing is sort of half-baked goods, there's probably a reason for that. And it's because we don't see Christ as He is, as God the Father wants us to, and for failing to see Him as we do, our hearts are not bound to His as they should be. You know, we can't say with the Song of Solomon, my beloved is mine and I am His. But if we get to that point, then the commands to us as Christians to obey obey Christ, to share the gospel, to give, to lay our lives down, guys, then they're not burdens to be borne. They're privileges to enjoy. And that's where we want to end up. We don't want to stay any kind of lukewarm, half-hearted Christian sort of trying to obey the rules of the faith. We want to be like that person, that spouse that knows their spouse. We know our Savior. We see Him as He is at least glimpses of His beauty and His glory and His righteousness, His justice, His grace, His mercy. And we're taking these vignettes out of the Old Testament to try to put some flesh on the person of Christ to see Him more fully. Because if we can see Him as He is, we've got His Spirit, if we've got His new nature living within us, and we're growing in the Spirit, informed by the truth, living like a Christian, loving Jesus, isn't a command that we sort of try and live up to it's a joy and it's a privilege and that's where we want to get through our series here this morning i love first peter 1 8 i forgot to start my timer and so that's dangerous for you guys sorry so we really haven't even started i don't know how far in the process we are sorry i try and keep myself honest and sometimes i fail uh first peter 1 8 when i read this as a young christian and still today it impacts me the same way Peter said this. Peter who had seen Christ sort of in His normal humanity and then post-resurrection in His glory, Peter said this to people who hadn't, like us, they hadn't seen Jesus physically. He says, though you've not seen Him, you love Him, and though you don't see Him now but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That was their experience. Peter says, that's true of you. You haven't seen Him. I haven't seen Him. You haven't either, not physically. And Peter says, joy inexpressible and full of glory. And I thought, wow, I'm not sure I'm feeling that. Well, God the Father wants us to feel that about Jesus, just as Peter did. And we get there by seeing Him more clearly. And you know what God the Father delights in more than anything else? It's delighting in His Son. And He invites us into this delight in His Son. And He does that in part by showing us Christ in the Old Testament. It's not to no purpose that God has laid out these vignettes, these pictures, these types, these analogies throughout the Old Testament. We're just looking at 12 and they're all in the book of Genesis. But this would just keep going throughout the Old Testament. God is showing us Christ as Christians. We have the prophet of the New Testament by which we can look back and say that's what God meant us to see 
in those stories, in those people, and in those events. So that's what we're about. We want to see Christ more fully. This morning we're going to do that by looking at Jesus through the lens of what's called the seed of Abraham. Last week we looked at Jesus as the ark in the story of the flood and Noah's ark. Before that, if you remember back several weeks, we looked at Jesus as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. That was the first time, clearly in the Bible, the gospel had been presented. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. God takes that theme of the seed, and now he advances it to the seed of Abraham. We're going to start in Genesis 12, will really be Genesis 12 and 22, and we'll also be in Galatians 3. You can pick those places out in your Bible now if you'd like. But Genesis 12 is a key and it's a pivotal chapter in the Bible. Uh, It's a huge turning point in the story of redemption. And if you go back from that just a little bit, you remember that the, the earth had waxed wicked, evil, and corrupt in the days of Noah really soon, right? I mean, mankind's hardly on the planet, and God says they're so bad I've got to destroy them and start over. And so he did that in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And in Genesis 9, there's a new world that's cleansed, and Noah and his descendants are repopulating the earth. You remember we commented that from Genesis 5, we know that some of Noah's relatives, in fact, most of Noah's living relatives, they didn't share Noah's faith, did they? Because they didn't get on the ark. They weren't saved. We also know, though, as the story progresses after the ark lands, that all of Noah's descendants won't share his faith either. And that's how we get in the boat we're in today, isn't it? Because not all of Noah's descendants shared Noah's faith. When we get to Genesis 10 and 11, we see some genealogies, but we also see rebellion starting afresh. And we see it through Noah's descendants through the line of Ham. Ham, and then Cush, and then a guy named Nimrod. And Nimrod's interesting. There's not actually a lot said, but what's said is very important. And Nimrod builds some cities. And the city that we remember him for is Babylon. And you remember that the people in Babylon in Nimrod's day said, we're going to build a city so significant and important and a tower that will reach to the heavens that we'll establish for ourselves a name, an identity, sort of a safety net. We're going to do that by our own might, by our own power. Well, God had told mankind to spread out around the earth. This is the opposite. This is rebellion against God, Babylon is. And so if you remember, God comes down and he confuses the language. So they have to disperse now because now people are dividing by their language groups. Now that looks like a curse on one hand, but it's actually a mercy on the other. And it's a mercy for this reason. As quickly as man had progressed in evil and corruption and wickedness before the flood, the same thing starting all over again right there. And so by confusing the languages and segregating people groups, God is slowing down the progress towards wickedness and corruption. So this was actually a very merciful thing God did. And by the way, you know, as we advance in science and technology, those walls, those barriers between cultures are coming down more and more. And frankly, the effect of this in the long haul is it allows mankind to corrupt more quickly the greater access we have towards each other in language and technology. But think of this. So I read Genesis 10 and 11 and I see Nimrod building the mighty cities of Babylon and Nineveh 
And in contrast to that, when I get to Genesis 12, Genesis 11, the mighty powers, the cities rising, the walls are being built, the towers going up, mankind unified, you know, it's us and our power. And in Genesis 12, in contrast to that, God calls, He quietly sows the seed of redemption through a single man that He'll call Abraham, from Abram to Abraham. And by the way, Babylon you'll see throughout the Bible, Babylon is the epitome not only of man's pride and man's fist in God's face, but also of satanic opposition to God's program. So in Revelation 17 and 18, it's Babylon the Great. That's Nimrod's city. Here started in Genesis 10 and 11, that's Nimrod's city at the end of the story of redemption that's eventually cursed and brought down by God. The great harlot that sits on many waters. Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great. God sows the seed of promise of redemption in a single man. When man is shaping his ongoing rebellion, God calls a single individual as a nomad. So the picture in our mind is, here's a great mighty city, and here's a single man. He's an old man with an old wife. And isn't this interesting that against all the powers of the world, no matter how much power the world can bring to bear, no matter what Nimrod could do, or generals, or armies, or kings, or nations, none of those things are more powerful than a single promise God gave to a childless couple that wander as wayfarers without a home in this little corner of the world we call Palestine, or Canaan, or Israel today, or the land of promise. If you get further, you fast forward up to Jesus' birth, Think of this. In Daniel's book of prophecies, Daniel sees the key kingdoms of the earth. And the last, <clears throat> the first three look like animals, kind of strange animals. But it's clear that they're, uh, they're terrifying. And they have uh, the ability to deal death. They're like lions and leopards and bears. But he gets to the last one and he says it's more terrifying than all of them because it doesn't even look like an animal. It's a terrifying beast. That's the Roman empire. That's the Roman government. And at Jesus' birth, the most terrifying of all the world governments Daniel sees is the one ruling in the day that Jesus comes onto the scene. And isn't it interesting that it's by the ruler of the Roman Empire that the Savior is born in the city that God said He would be born in. And isn't it interesting too that Herod, the king of the world, of his corner that he occupied, couldn't kill one single little male baby. He couldn't get it done. And when Rome later crucifies Jesus, Acts tells us they're doing so according to the predetermined will of God. They're satisfying God's will. And in fact, Rome is doing, as it were, a favor to God because they're planting the seed that had to die so that it could rise again because Jesus had said in John 12, unless a seed dies, it abides by itself alone. But if it dies... It will bear fruit. Well, Jesus had to be planted in his crucifixion stage, dead in the ground. The Roman government, the most terrifying power on the face of the earth, is one that plants the seed of God's promise that God provides your redemption and mine through. So I would just say this. <clears throat> we live in a time in which we feel like the bad guys look like they're winning, either nationally or internationally. The terrorists are winning, thugs, people that we don't agree with politically. And I just say this. It doesn't matter what our scene looks like. The appearance of things in the moment have nothing to do with ultimate reality. 
We know who wins. We know how he wins. God is at work in your day and mine no less than in Abraham's. A quiet guy walking around the Middle East with a promise from a sovereign God who says, I'm going to use you and through you I'm going to bring the seed that will be the promise to the nations of the world. I'm going to bless you as we'll see here now in Genesis 12. So don't worry if you're looking around wondering what, what's going on and are the bad guys winning. The bad guys never ultimately win. God wins, we know that. Genesis 12, if you've got your Bible, turn there. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God says to Abram, hadn't changed his name at this point, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, the land which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's the phrase that we want to focus on this morning. In you, all families on the earth will be blessed. Now, if you looked at Abraham, he's 75 years old when God calls him. He's an old man. So God says to an old man with an old woman, 10 years his junior, through you, every family on the earth is going to be blessed. You'd say, that's going to be quite a trick. How, God, are you going to pull that off through this old couple? What will that look like? What would it look like for God to bless all the earth through Abram? Now, if we're not clear on what, how he does this in the Old Testament, we are very clear on this when we get to the New. So if you've got Galatians there, you can turn to Galatians now for just a minute. When Paul wrote Galatians, He's writing to a church that's heavily influenced by uh, Jewish influence. And the Jews are telling the Gentile Christians that in order really to be saved and really to belong to God, to be God's people, they've got to become Jews and they've got to keep the law and they're going to start that by being circumcised, the men. And so Paul comes in and he says, that's not the case. Becoming a Jew won't save you. But becoming a follower of the first Jew, Abraham, will. So forget the law and forget all the other things you might think of related to Judaism, Paul says, and focus on the faith of the first Jew, Father Abraham. Imitate his faith and you'll have the promises God gave through Abraham. Don't worry about becoming a Jew. You see this in Galatians 3, verse 8. Paul says, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Paul interprets Genesis 12, 3. He says, Genesis 12, 3 is the gospel. Genesis 12.3 is the gospel. And that means when God says to Abram, in you all families will be blessed, he really means through Abram, his ultimate descendant, his ultimate seed, the Lord Jesus himself. Paul says Genesis 12.3 is the gospel. It's in seed form. We don't know all its permutations. It's not fleshed out. But Paul says that was the gospel. Genesis 12.3. You know, when we look back in the Old Testament and we say, were people saved differently in the Old Testament than the New? Because we say in the New Testament, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And you say, well, Jesus wasn't known as Jesus in the Old Testament. People were always saved by God's grace through faith. There's no other way to be saved, Old Testament or New. 
but the content or the clarity of what their faith in varied. And so there's progressive knowledge about how God would save and that His Savior would be Jesus, but we're always saved by God's grace through faith. Abraham, as we'll see here later, Abraham believed God's promise. And so he was saved by faith, but the content was not as clear in his day. But Paul says unequivocally, Genesis 12, 3 is the gospel. And that means Jesus is in Genesis 12, 3. If you read Genesis 12, 3 and think God's going to save or bless the world through Abraham, and then you look at Abraham's life, he has feet of clay like we do, doesn't he? And we think that looks like a stretch. And that would be a stretch that somehow God would bless all the earth through Abraham alone. And God never intended that it would be Abraham in his person, but that it would be Abraham's heir, his key descendant, his seed. And I think for us, there's still the tendency to focus on something or someone's less than God means us to. So we look at Abraham and we think Abraham's going to be the blessing, and that was never God's intention. It's Abraham's seed, his descendant, his son. You know, it's easy today to focus on externals, things that we can see, uh, churches, church buildings, denominations, creeds, particular version of the Bible. I carry my Bible in my hand. I come from the right kind of family. You know, I have the right teacher. Maybe you do. I don't know. I have the right teacher. You know, I follow this group or that group. It's easy to focus on the externals, but the truth is, just like in Abraham's day, God wants to see past all those things, those people, those movements, those buildings. He wants to see past Abraham and see the one that Abraham would be ultimately the father, the human father of, at least in that line of patronage that we'll see throughout the Old Testament. God means us not to stop at Abraham, but to see the one Abraham embraces. Now, Abraham, as we said, he's 75 years old when God calls him. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, and I want you to you hang out over in this corner that we call Israel today. You go hang out there for a while. And he does. He's faithful. He's the paradigm of faith. And so he and Sarah, they're hanging out. They're going a little bit here and a little bit there. And you know what? God eventually fulfills the promise, and they have Isaac. God brings laughter into their life through their little son, Isaac. Abraham's 100. Sarah's 90. And you know, the little guy grows up and you can imagine Abraham loves him. His heart is set on his son, Isaac, and Isaac's growing up. He's becoming a young man. And one day God surprises Abraham because he says, "Uh, Abraham, uh, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and you take him to the mountain, I'll show you. And you're to offer him there to me as a burnt sacrifice. Now, there's a challenge here from Abraham, which frankly, the texts don't even bring up. It doesn't tell us if Abraham paused, if he asked God to explain It just says that he did it. But for Abraham, there's this challenge, isn't there? Because when you read through the account God has with Abraham, Genesis 13, 15, and 17, God has promised Abraham that he's going to have more children than Abraham can number, more children than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. So God says, through Isaac, I'm going to do all this stuff, and now I want you to go and slay Isaac. And so... Abraham just goes to do it, and he knows all of God's promises hinge on this guy that I've just been commanded to slay. What's with that? But he does. He marches Isaac up the mountain. He ties him up. He binds him. He puts him on the wood of the offering, and he's ready to slay him. 
And when he's, the knife is raised, God calls from heaven and says, Abraham, don't do it. And of course, he makes a replacement. There's a ram in the thicket. But out of that obedience, God speaks again to Abraham in Genesis 22. And God reaffirms the promises that He'd given to Abraham about having all these children. Children too numerous to count. But at the end of this reaffirmation of these promises already given, He says this in Genesis 22.18. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So if I'm just reading through Genesis 22, I say, fine, God's promised Abraham all these children. And somehow those children collectively are going to bless the world. Not sure how that works, but collectively they're going to bless the world. Well, if I think that, I've missed it again, because this is the gospel again in Genesis 22:18, Just like... Genesis 12.3, this ups the ante just a little bit because now instead of saying through Abraham, he says through Abraham's seed. Now if I'm thinking that this is a plural usage of seed, I'd be wrong because Paul tells me I would be wrong in Galatians 3.16. So Paul again on this same thing, don't become a Jew to be saved, but become like Abraham and believe. In that context, Paul says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. This is Genesis 22.18. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many. He's not using seeds plural, but rather to one, to your seed. That is to Christ. So Paul here elucidates on Genesis 22.18 by saying that was Christ. Christ singularly. So Genesis 12, 3, we know it says Abraham, but it means his seed. Genesis 22, 18 says seed, but we know it's not plural use, it's singular. That's Christ also. So when you and I read Genesis 12, 3, or this passage in Genesis 22, God means us with the lens of the New Testament. He means us to see he always meant that referring to Christ. That was always the picture, the promise that Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman, would come and would save us. Generally, when you look in the context of Abraham and God's promises related to seed, if the promise is what God will give to the seed, it's usually plural. And it's what God will give to Abraham's plural descendants. But if you see a context that is what God will do through the seed, that's usually singular and refers to Christ. And again, this would be hard to see if all we've got is the Old Testament text, but Paul has told us what God intended all along. You know, it's interesting that when God means to pour out blessings on the world, like on Abraham's seed, the opportunities are limitless. And they're as numerous as the nation's and the families on the earth. But when He needs to save us, then there's only one option. It's very singular indeed. Now it's interesting too, when God says He'll bless the world through Abraham, and then defines that to mean through Abraham's key descendant, His seed, He's making a rather incredible claim. You remember if you go back into the creation account, God says that there would be plants, that they would have fruit with seed in them. And the picture, the thought of seed in the Old Testament is 
my life is extended through my progeny, through my children, through my seed, or that apple tree is reproduced through the seed in that fruit, so that apple tree continues. And in the Old Testament context, it was a terrible shame and disappointment if a person didn't continue their life through having children. They felt like they'd been cut off from significance. So a seed meant that even if I was physically gone from the earth, that my presence was still there, and therefore I was still blessed because my presence was there in my children. God always meant to bless through seed. Well, when he says that it will be the seed of Abraham, and we know from the New Testament that that is Jesus, then we really have the definition or the intimation at least of the incarnation, don't we? We know that the seed, Jesus, is the second person of the Trinity. It's God the Son. So when we read Genesis 12.3 and Genesis 22.18, we, we don't just know that one of Abraham's descendants will save us, but we also know as Christians looking back that this is the incarnation. How crazy that Abraham's heir will be God Himself. That's what we're learning here. As we look back, we know from God the Son in the New Testament taking on our humanity in the flesh. That's Abraham's seed. Jesus at this level is Abraham's life continued. It's Abraham's real humanity continued. And yet within that, it's also God Himself taking on Abraham's humanity and ours too. So the claims there are absolutely fantastic. You see the genealogies in Matthew 1 and Luke 3 sort of bear testament to that. They go back to Abraham and then they go back to Adam as well. If we inherit the blessings promised to the world through Abraham, if we are Abraham's heirs, if we're his descendants, what do those promises to us look like today? What, what are the blessings of Abraham to the earth today? You remember back in Noah's story, we said, if you were on the ark, you've left the corrupt world behind, and you land on the cleansed shores of a new earth, and you start over. And that's the blessing of being in Abraham's ark. But if we're in Christ, we know eventually that we'll land on the shores of the new heaven and new earth, right? Jesus will save us from God's destruction, from His righteous judgment in the lake of fire, and we'll land safely on the shores of the new heaven and new earth. So that's coming. And we also know that we'll share Christ's glory. It says we'll see Him and we'll be like Him. That's hard to imagine. Don't know what all that looks like. But what about here and now? What do the promises to bless the earth through Abram's seed, what do they look like here and now for you and me? Right now, present tense. And there's three words. Paul brings these up in Galatians 3 and 4. Justification sonship, and the Spirit. You know, last time, by the way, we were in a narrative, and stories are so easy to follow, aren't they? And this is a little bit of theology, and so we're using terms like justification that might just turn you off right away, but, but stick with it for just a minute. Uh, justification is the only way you and I can stand in the presence of a holy God. If we're not righteous in God's eyes, we're going to hell forever. That's all there is to it. God's holy, He can't abide sin, He can't do it. So if we're not justified, we have no hope of a future out of God's judgment. We're judged, we're deficient, we're wanting, and God would have to judge us. 
So when we use a term like justification or we're righteous in God's eyes, God's, this is our only hope of anything for the future. It's justification. And that's exactly what Paul says we have. So if you're in Galatians, Galatians 3, verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God and God says, you're righteous in my eyes. At verse 24 in the same chapter, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. See the same thing in Romans 8.33. Paul's developing very similar thoughts there. You and I receive the benefit of promises from God to Abraham through his seed, his son Jesus, in being justified by faith in Christ. And justification is the foundation of anything else that God might be able to do for us or bless us. That's it. If we're not justified, we're under God's condemnation righteously. The second thing is sonship. And that's no insult to the female uh, sex in our midst to say sonship. You know, back in the day in in, uh, the Bible times, sonship meant that you were an heir of your father's estate. You were an heir of your father's estate. So when Paul tells us that we have sonship, through the promises to Abraham, fulfilled through his seed Jesus, sonship is a big deal. In fact, the Bible says that we are co- or fellow heirs with Jesus himself. Jesus is the heir to God the Father. What does God the Father own? What does he have? He owns everything. Jesus is his heir. What does Jesus get? Jesus gets everything. If you're a fellow heir, if you're a co-heir with Jesus because you're a son of God, what do you get? You get everything. Now, we don't see this right now. But we are sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus, and therefore we are co-heirs with Jesus. Right now, we get everything. We haven't come into our inheritance, but we are God the Father's Heirs. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3.26, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are God's heirs through faith in Christ. He says the same thing in Galatians 4, verse 5, and again verse 7. He might redeem those who were under the law that he might receive the adoption as sons. You're no longer slaves, you're a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir through God. You know, if we feel like we are poor financially or in our health, in our time on the earth, it's no big deal. Because God says you are co-heirs with Christ. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my heir. And everything I have is yours. Do you remember in the story in Luke 15, the prodigal, when the father comes back and he tries to entreat the older brother and he says to Junior, all that I have is yours. You're my heir. It's all. What do you want? Do you want to go? It's yours. Well, we are fellow or co-heirs with Christ of all that God the Father has. Right now, haven't come into the inheritance of it yet, but that's our standing. We're sons and we're daughters. And the last thing is the Spirit. This is in Galatians also. Galatians 3, 2. 
This is the Holy Spirit in us, not just with us. Paul says to them, I want to find out from you, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He appeals to them that they received the Holy Spirit. It was probably somewhat spectacular. You read Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. When the Spirit came on in that initial birth phases of the church, it was usually rather spectacular. And so Paul appeals and he says, how did you get the Holy Spirit? You got it. They know it. It was a fact in their history. They got the Holy Spirit. Or in verse 14, he says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And last, in 4 verse 6, you are sons. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and Paul makes this clear in Romans 8, if you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have Christ. You're not His. The Spirit is given when we believe. And the Spirit in us does all these things. You remember Jesus said, the Spirit's been with you. That was true all the way back to Abraham and all the way back to our first parents. But He says, now He'll be in you. And so from Pentecost on, in Acts 2 on, believers get the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit intercedes for us. When we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays for us. The Spirit gives us our spiritual gifts. The Spirit reveals God the Father and God the Son to us. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit because that was part of the blessing promised to Abraham through his seed. And we have that today. As Christians, we have the Spirit. That's part of the blessing. You've got some additional references in Romans. I'll let you look those up on your own. We've read multiple times here how you receive the blessing promised to Abraham and through Abraham and his seed. I love the passage in Genesis 15. You know, God's given Abraham these promises. You're going to have all these kids. You know, you're going to have this son. and It'll be great. And, and Abraham's looking around and he says, well, God, my heir right now, he's somebody that's not even my child. You know, he's born to someone else. He's in my household. And God takes Abraham out at night. And it wouldn't be night like here in the city. There'd be no lights. And probably the strip of the Milky Way galaxy was overhead. And, and you know, so many stars you can't count them, right? I mean, we'd spend all night trying to count. And God says to Abraham, Abe, you look up at those stars and try and count them. And you're going to have more children than the stars in the sky. You'll have more children than the sand that's on the seashore. And it's in the context of God giving Abraham numerous descendants as well as a singular descendant. It's believing God's promise for that that Abraham believes, and this is Genesis 15.6. It's one of the most important verses in all the Bible. It's quoted in the New Testament because it provides the basis for us understanding how God saves us. It says, Abraham believed God. And God said, Abe, you're righteous through faith. You and I come into the benefit of the promises to Abraham, the blessings to Abraham, to all the earth, through his seed, by doing the same thing he did. All we do is believe. We accept that gift by faith. Now we believe the content of our faith is different because now we know the seed was Jesus. And we know that the seed has come to the earth. He's incarnated. He's taken on our flesh through Abraham's line. He's died on the cross for our sins. He's raised for our justification. And when we trust Christ today, we get the blessings promised to the earth 
through Abraham, ultimately through his seed. I love this. All we do is believe. Jesus has done the work. We get the benefit. Galatians 3, 6, and 7 says this way. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that those who are of faith are sons of God. You know, God, uh, if you read in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, a guy named Boaz takes a shining to a little gal named Ruth. And she's a widow and she has no hope in the world. And she goes out in the field one day and she's going to glean. And that means she pick up a seed here, a seed there that the harvesters have left behind. But Boaz takes a shining to this young gal. He respects her, esteems her. So he tells his harvesters, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to leave whole heads of grain there on the field in front of her. And she'll walk up and she won't see this little thing that she picks up one by one. She'll see a whole head of grain. I think it's in the King James. It says it this way. They will leave handfuls on purpose. There will be handfuls on purpose. Ruth walks along and she sees there's not one or two. There's a whole bunch right there for me. That's what God has done for us in the Old Testament in Jesus. He throws these handfuls on purpose down for us to see. So when we're reading through these Old Testament stories, we want to ask ourselves, Lord, where is Jesus? Where is your son in this? Show me your son so I can know him more fully, so I can love him, so I can be blessed in all the ways you've always meant me to be blessed in the seed of Abraham, Jesus, my Lord and my Savior. And Father, we just thank you that your eternal purposes have never been threatened. That, Lord, it doesn't matter what enemies at work. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter how dire the circumstances look. You've made promises to us ultimately to be fulfilled in Jesus, your Son. And, Father, we thank you that his death, substitutionary atonement, his glorious resurrection has already been accomplished. We serve today a risen, glorified Savior. And we, Father, we thank you that just as certainly those future promises about Jesus' glory, about his ruling the heavens and the earth, about, Lord, a new heaven and a new earth and our glory there with him, Lord, they are as certain now as they are at that future point. Father, we thank you for your son. We ask you to help us to see him. Lord, help us to feel your love for us through your son. Help us to return that love, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.